This talk by Joan Sutherland called Embracing Change 3 was given at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York on August 4th, 2012. So how is it now? So what I would like to do is um, talk with you about a kind of um, way of, of holding change in general. And then we're going to get into really the nitty-gritty stuff like not knowing, not being certain, um, what it's like when we're in the dark, um, what it's like to be responsive. So I want to um, differentiate some kinds of change because it's not all... It's not all the same. And since we're doing the um, whole tour of the history of the universe in one weekend version of this, I'm going to tip you to the important point here. Um, we're going to talk about change as geology and season and weather. And the secret point about talking about change in those ways is that it's a way of giving us a little bit of distance from it so that it doesn't feel so personal. There is stuff that's geology that it's rising and falling, it's changing, but it's doing it at a pretty slow rate. So that's the stuff that feels like it's perpetual. What are the, what are the things in my life that just feel like they're there and they've always been there and they're always going to be there and or they're moving very, very slowly? That's the... That's the bedrock geology stuff. The other thing about geology that's kind of beautiful is it's the stuff that connects us with other people. It's the stuff that we all share in common as human beings. Um, I have a quote over my desk from Eleanor Roosevelt who said, most of the world, most of the work in the world gets done by people who weren't feeling very good that day. I love that because a lot of my work gets done on days when I'm not feeling very good. But what that reminded me of was that's a thing about hum being human that connects us. That's true of a lot, lot, lot of people. This is not my private you know, sorrow. This is not only, it is not only I who am experiencing this. This is our common lot. So geology also has that quality. That, what do we share? What is the common ground that we walk on? Then um, the, the next layer up is seasons. So seasons are times in our lives that arise and stay a while and then eventually go away, turn into another season. So some seasons can be can feel like there's so much creativity going on, there's so much blossoming. Some seasons can feel like we're walking through an arid desert and it's never going to end. There can be seasons of loss, um, seasons of falling in love, seasons of illness, 
They come, they stay a while, they go. And then lastly, there's weather, which we might also call mood. It comes in, it squalls, it goes away. (laughs) And it happens relatively fast. So um, what's the weather like can change from morning to afternoon to evening, or it can last a week or whatever it is. But it's rising and falling pretty quickly. So if we think about change, what is this? You, you notice something's happening. There's a, you're having a reaction to it. Is this geology? Is this a season? Is this weather? Does that allow you to have just a little bit of crucial space between yourself and whatever it is that's happening, whatever you're experiencing? When I was younger, I had a friend who had a very eventful life, stuff always going on. And um, his mother, who was um, of an immigrant family and lived in Brooklyn, used to say to him, the trouble with you, Stevie, is you take your life too personally. (laughs) Okay, that's a very deep Dharma point. (laughs) We take our lives too personally. So the secret tip that I'm giving you about seeing things as geology, weather, um, and in between seasons is that it helps us take our lives just a tiny bit less personally. Let's us have a little bit more spaciousness, a little bit more ability to ask that question, how is it now? And that it is bigger than we are. Okay, any questions about that? Is that clear? So let's bring those into meditation. And I'm just going to ask the three questions. What is, um, what's the geology right now in your life? What season is it? And what weather is passing through? We'll take those one at a time.
What's the geology in your life? What's rising and falling so slowly that it might as well be permanent? And what is part of your common humanity? What season is it in your life right now?
What's the weather like right now? Let's start with weather. How many people curse and scream at the thunderstorms? <laughs> Someone does. Okay. Does it make a difference to think of mood as weather that comes in and goes out? Yes. Um, in addition to um, helping me deal with my own mood, it makes me much more. I think if I keep this in mind, uh, I can see myself being much more accepting um, and um, gentle with the mood of those around me. Thank you. Thank you. So there's how you experience your own mood, and there's also how you experience the moods of those around you, right? Which is also weather blowing in and out. Yes, over here. Um, it made me think of, uh, there's a woman that I work with who's obsessed with the actual weather, you know, that she's checking it all the time. She's obsessed with? The real weather. The real weather. Yes, she's checking it all the time. She's the person, like, if you want to know what it's going to do this weekend, she'll tell you whatever. And it's actually really annoying after a while because it's sort of like, it's the weather, it's going to happen. I don't need to hear all the time. She talks about it a lot. Um, and it made me think also how annoying it is um, to be constantly taking one's own emotional temperature. Um, that that kind of, you know, that you can become obsessed with it in the same way that sometimes people become obsessed with, you know, is it going to rain later? Should I bring an umbrella? Um, in a way of trying to control it. Yeah. Um, I used to be really frightened by my mood changes, and I know that that was a direct um, reaction to a period I went through where I had a, about a nine-month pretty serious debilitating depression. And it came over like, 
you know, pretty bad weather front that settled in and socked in and stayed, and it was very frightening, and it was like catatonic. And so after that experience, um, for a long time, when I would have a, you know, a bad day or even a bad afternoon, or I'd start to feel, you know, feel a, a bad weather front coming in, I would get very frightened. Oh no, am I going down that path again? So um, now, many years later, um, it's it's uh, it feels like like progress and growth and change that now I really can recognize the moods as weather fronts, and I've learned to kind of like settle in, just feel whatever the bad feeling might be, or the sadness, or depression, or fatigue, or blotness, or or anger, whatever it is, and sort of settle into it, knowing that you know, it will pass, and it always does, and that's sort of, you know, now I've been around that block enough times to know, oh yeah, this is going to pass, so that's reassuring. Um, but I've been, I noticed something, and I've been thinking a lot about it this weekend, that I have two very, very highly emotional daughters, and my oldest daughter has, you know, um, frequent meltdowns where, and she, if she gets overwhelmed, she was just studying for the GRE recently, and spent all day studying, and just when she would finish doing the practice test, she threw herself onto the lawn chair, just sobbing. And, and, just, and I know this is her way, and this part of me that really admires how fully she feels her feelings. And she just was like, I just, you know, I just have to like scream and cry and stop my, and she's 26, she's not a toddler. <laughs> and, you know, and, and but, there, but this fear comes up because I, I can't, save her from her feelings um, and I think that's a mother thing too of like wanting, you know, it's okay for me to have bad days, it's not okay for my kids to have bad days, I just really want to fix that so I, I've been really watching my reaction is to just like well she thinks I'm, I'm intolerant of it and I really just sort of back away and you know, look at my watch and like hope she's going to get through this weather front faster than the last one, she always does and she and she literally comes up singing and laughing, and she's like, next. <laughs> and, but it's, it was just, because you did mention that thing about not only our own moods, but others' moods. And I, I think that the people that are really close to us, if we can't impact them in what we think is this positive way, it's, it's a little intimidating. It's very hard for me to just see it as her weather front, mm -hmm. I, you know. And I, I do get a little impatient, like, okay, are you, you know enough already, you know, get through this now, everything's fine, you know, so it's just interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I think parents are a special case. Parents get a sort of like worry dispensation, you know, because that's <laughs> part of the job description. But in general, when we have relationships, that's such a common thing in relationship where we have this sense of, oh, it, you shouldn't be doing that. It shouldn't be like that for you. Or I want to save you from that. Or things would be better if you didn't and all of that. Very, very common dynamic. One of the inquiries to do there is, where is the anxiety actually located? Is this an anxiety that I'm really having about this other person? Or am I feeling an anxiety that I want this other person to be okay so it takes care of my anxiety? What's the source of the anxiety? Is it, is it f for them? Is it for me? Is it most likely some kind of mixture of the two of them? So that's a way, again, you know, we're talking about so many ways of just taking a small step back and looking at the situation and saying, oh, you know, part of this is about I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to feel this anxiety in the face of my daughter's 
um, you know, what seems to me like excessive feeling. And then you can deal with that. By, that has nothing to do with her. You can deal with that on your own. Anybody can deal with that. That's a piece you can just immediately work with on your own. Okay? So do that differentiation. Where is the anxiety coming from? What's it aimed at? Okay, what about, um, what about seasons? Times in our lives. Anybody have an experience with that? Well, I'm still wishy-washy. Um, I, had, I got it down to two out of the four. I feel like I'm in a period with a lot of transition, and so to me, that's either spring or fall. Um, you know, summer's full of light and possibilities and relaxedness. I really like winter, too. And so I sort of looked at where I am right now, and I thought, well, you know, I can narrow it down to two. That's, that's a start. And uh, it just seemed like a really good way to play with it. Um, I'm going to have to meditate on these questions forever. I'm an earth science teacher, and I teach meteorology. So this, <laughs> this really... <laughs> Really hit home. <laughs> For myself, I thought we, you know, the, especially I think Narayan earlier um, and Rinpoche to some extent was talking about um, dealing with ourselves with a certain kind of gentleness, and 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 I connect gentleness with that bit of spaciousness, with that ability to hold something um, without sort of bullying it or trying to to whip it into shape. And when I think about the seasons of my life, that helps me do that. Oh, this is just the autumn of my transition, you know? Even if it's in August, it doesn't matter about that. But, um, oh, that's just what this season is about. And it has these qualities and these characteristics and these instabilities and these challenges and these beauties. Um, And then again, not quite so personal, Um, a kind of softness about what's going on in our lives. Yeah. I mean, I actually do spend a lot of time thinking about seasons. I live in New England, and I have all these changes. And sometimes I have trouble letting go. You know, when the snow melts and ski season's over, I have trouble letting go. But what helps me is knowing it'll come around again. And so in the meditation, I, ha- I got a little stuck there because I don't think the sea. I mean... I equate some of the season's sort of roles. I mean, my kids are going off to college, so that's a season that's coming to a close, but that one's not coming back. And so I was sort of coming and going with, I guess, with the analogy, because to me there's a cyclical piece of seasons. Absolutely. And there isn't necessarily a cyclical piece of your life. The coming and going part, that fit. Mm -hmm. But that may not, I mean, that's not coming back. I'm not going to have toddlers again. Um, so, so it works, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not a perfect analogy, but it does help to give those, looking at those phases in your life, it helps to give it some, a frame, I guess. Okay, so the, the cycles aren't going to repeat themselves exactly. You're not going to keep every year having toddlers. I mean, that's not going to, we hope that that's done. Um, but, but seasons of loss are going to repeat. So the nature of the season isn't about toddlers, it's about loss, say. It's about change, it's about transition. Those, those are going to keep cycling around until we don't anymore. 
Yeah. So can you bring it down underneath the specific um, circumstances to the quality of the time? How do I, how do I go through an autumn of loss? Yeah. Um, I don't really. I don't. Microphones make me nervous. That's why I haven't really wanted to speak, but. But I thought it was worth saying that this exercise did a lot for me um, because thinking about seasons, I feel like it just changed my whole perspective of my life and change. And, and seeing like, oh, well, in my 20s were like this season, and in my 30s it was this season, and now I'm coming on a really, really hard change in my life that I didn't choose. And... Um, I guess I can see it like, oh, it's just another season. Yeah. And that's really different than pushing against it. So. Yeah. So the nature of winter is that leaves get stripped from the trees and, um, and things die and go back to the root and then everything gets covered with snow. That's the nature of winter. Nobody says, bad winter shouldn't happen, you know? We kind of accept that that's the nature of that time. So if this is a winter time in your life, the question is not, how do I fight with the fact that this is happening? The question is, how do I live in winter for now? And, most importantly, too, when winter is over, how do I notice that winter is over? And we've moved on to something else, and I'm not holding on to that. Um, some of you, I, I know that there are a fair number of therapists here, and some of you may know the, the myth of Psyche, who does a journey in the underworld, and she's given some advice about how to navigate the underworld, which is pretty terrific advice. And one of them is, um, when you go to Persephone's palace, Persephone's the queen of the underworld, whatever you do, don't sit on her throne. Sit on the floor and get out of there um, as soon as you've done what you came to do as soon as you've completed your task. And what I think that's about is do the underworld journey. You must do that. And, and there's all this advice about how to do it, how to do it in a good way. But don't enthrone yourself as the queen of the underworld. Sit on the floor, stay humble, and when it's time to move, move. And head back out under the, you know, the common constellations of our night sky, which is what Psyche does. So... When you're in the season, be in the season. When the season begins to change, notice that and change with it. And don't hold on to the identity of that season. Don't become the queen of the underworld for the rest of your life. Right now, I'm transitioning from one season to, the, to another. I'm, I just sold a ha my house of 32 years, and I'm moving to a new community. You know, um, called the Seasons. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it really is a transition for me, you know, moving to a new season in my life, you know, a community with, with other people. My children have left, so I have... You know, so I was in a big house by myself, and now I'm ready to move on to another season in my life. And I just said, you know, I thought this was very apropos. 
Great. So, so then you have this wonderful thing about to happen, which is to be alert to what the qualities are of this new season. Oh, what's this like? You get to, you know, you get to see a whole new thing. Right. And I, yeah. and I chose this community because it has, you know, just wonderful people there. You know, it's, it's a real support. It's something with, I feel that I'm going to have a lot of positive experiences. And that's what I'm moving from. Great. You know, from the loss of my children being home with me to uh, an addition of new people in my life. I have a question. I have a question. Um, I'm reminded of this very sage administrative assistant who's been around Wackel quite a few times and uh, uh, a challenging boss. And she would go to the core team members and she'd call you in the morning, always happy, seemingly, and she'd tell you what the weather was like. And that meant what was going on inside his office. Mm -hmm. And it helped prepare you and it helped you make decisions better about how to interact with that person yeah. for greater effect. Is that the same thing? Oh, so much the same thing. In fact, that's a great carry around, use any time kind of practice, which is when you have a strong reaction, a strong feeling, um, I hate this. You know, I wish this weren't happening. Whatever it is, um, ugh, the boss is doing it again, you know. Take that statement, say exactly the same thing, but without the charge. The boss is doing it again. I hate this. Do you see? Just by taking the charge off, the charge is an opinion. The charge is the opinion that whatever it is is bad and, and wrong. If you take the charge up, if you take the opinion away, it just, it's just a report. And so this person does this beautiful report every day about how it is, how the weather is. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing you can try, is when you have that kind of strong reaction, say the same thing, say it without the charge, and see what happens when you do. See what you can let go of when you take the charge off. So you're not denying what you feel, but you're denying that primacy over everything else. And it, since, since this is um, up, maybe I'll, I'll, um, I'll follow that a little bit and then we'll come back to seasons and, and geology. Um, you've heard this a couple of different ways already. and. It might be the, the single most important thing you take away. I don't know. But it's this. When something is happening and you have a reaction to it, it's a natural human tendency, apparently, to substitute the reaction we're having for what's actually happening. And we move from being in what's happening, in relationship to what's going on, to in relationship to our reaction to what's going on. If something, if we're having a conversation and things are getting really difficult and I'm starting to get angry, 
often what we'll do is my anger will become the most important thing, no longer the conversation. And I'll be dealing with my anger, and I'll be thinking that because I'm angry, that's the most important thing. So a really, really important thing that all of us are saying in different ways is notice when your reaction, when your opinion is substituting itself for what's actually happening and climb back down into what's actually happening. Let the reaction be there, but don't allow it to take over. Don't allow it to become the most important thing. It's one thing among many. So the reaction arises, and if we define the it of how is it now as very, very small, you know, pretty much bounded by skull and skin, then if the what's inside the skull and skin is angry, that's going to become tremendously important. That's how it is now. It is angry, and that's, and that's what's true. If we define it a little bit larger... If I'm having a difficult conversation with someone, if it includes that other person as well, then if I ask, how is it now? One of the things it is, is angry, but not the only thing. And anger, instead of rising and filling our vision and filling everything around us, becomes one of many things rising in a very big field. And that field is as big as you will let it be. That it. How is it now? That it will be as big as you let it be, and it will include as much as you let it include. And when we do that, when we keep making that larger, when we keep including more, when we keep thinking that the it is a bigger thing than what's happening inside of us, then whatever we don't have to suppress what's happening inside of us. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to think, oh, I shouldn't be feeling that. I'm wrong to feel that. It's how unenlightened that I should be angry at this moment. What's wrong with me? All this meditating, it's doing nothing. You know, we don't have to do any of that because it's not the only thing going on. It's this one small thing happening in a very large field, and we can let it rise and let it fall and pay as much attention to it as we want rather than allowing it to become the new reality that we're now living. It's just a small part of the reality that was already there. Yes, is that a question? I I found that very helpful in terms of what I was thinking about in terms of seasons. my daughter, my only child, is 16, and I'm already feeling great dread and pain of the coming season of her leaving home. And um, However, it's actually not the event that itself that I fear and dread. It's actually my own reaction to it. And I think being able to separate those two um, is, a, is a helpful thing. And the reaction, of course, remains, and one doesn't suppress it at the same time. Um, you put it in a larger context. And so it's helpful for me to realize I'm actually not afraid of her leaving. What I'm afraid of is how I'm going to feel. 
Okay, so in the situation of your daughter's impending departure, what is the call? What is, what, what is the call from the world for you? I suppose to understand that ultimately that's good and beneficial in the way life should unfold and at the same time to see um, that what makes my life valid or joyful is um, within me and not ultimately affected by that. So in, in what feels like it will be a vacuum in her absence, I must find my inner uh, being that is independent of that. So that's, I would say that's more the response to the call. What's the call? Love? I don't know. I don't know quite what that means. But. That's a pretty good answer. Love. So some deep love is calling and asking for your attention and your response, right? Be a good dad in this. Yeah, and then that's that's the response. So that quality of the world calls and I respond is really different than something's wrong and I need to fix it. Even if that something is inside of me, right? You're not having to fix something. You're just having to navigate with awareness the territory of dadness. Does that make sense? Yes, even if that hmm? territory at a certain point has a season of apparent emptiness. Say, say again. I said even if that territory of dadness at a certain season has the quality of emptiness. Yeah. That's inherent in it. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. No problem there. Yeah. If I could only believe that. <laughs> yeah. So then that's the inquiry. Do I really believe that? And if not, why not? And what's, what do I need to deconstruct so that I can be intimate with that? I mean, you know, when I ask what the call is, you just said love. I mean, it was, there it was, right there. So what's in the way? Is there anything in the way? And it feels like it's pretty simple stuff that you could, if you just kind of turned your attention toward it, you could probably just brush it away and, and, and stay really connected to that love. And, and then follow that, like, you know, the roller coaster that it is with, with children. Okay, um, anything else about seasons? What about geology? Anyone have a strong experience with geology? Um, yeah, very aging. Mm. And in my case, what's killing me is uh, I like to be very, very active. And, gee, I just can't do what I used to do. And it's killing me. Okay. Say that same thing with the opinion stripped away. What does it sound like? Hmm. Um, 
I like to be very active. I can't do the things I used to do. And it feels as if it's killing me. That's different, isn't it? Yeah. Already that's different. I can't do the things I used to do. That's, that's the nature of aging. Is there anything you can do that you didn't used to be able to do? Like, are you wiser? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you've, you've obviously had a well-spent no, life. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I have gotten wiser. That's true. I think, yeah. I, I think I've gotten more patient. You think you got... More patient. More patient. Okay, wiser, patient. Those are not insignificant things. So make it larger. Include more. Yeah, this is, what, this is what's falling away, but what's rising? What's coming in? Just make the picture bigger. Because when you do that, it's just truer. If you're focused on what you're losing, um, that's partial. If you bring in the whole thing, you've got a truer sense of what's actually going on and a better place from which to respond. Okay? Yeah, that's actually very helpful in, in doing um, um, some of the things that have happened in my life because of the passage of time are that my kids are growing up, and one of them has gotten to be just extraordinarily delightful. So that, that's a small price to pay. I'm not sure if this is what you meant by by bedrock, but what stuck me, uh, or what, what what stayed with me when you said, um, what are the things that just seem like they're just sort of there forever and unmovable, you know, not changing. And for me, um, the thing that always seems like the under layer is the um, um, insistence of cr my cravings and my and my habits towards uh, comfort, finding that comfortable place, you know, no matter how I think I can be above that and make new, maybe better habits, those old, insistent, strong habits are the bedrock of, that I really um, beat myself up for a lot, honestly. It's, it's just like, oh, that again. Yeah. It's always there. Yeah. Okay, so if you have persistent habits that are not convinced out of existence by happy thoughts, I'll do better. I could have better habits, right? The problem is that you're just trying to replace, you know, bad ideas with good ideas or bad habits with good habits. And that's very, very hard to do. And you're still in the territory of fixing it. You know, here's this problem and how can I fix it? And if they won't disappear through... Um, happy thinking and positive, you know, affirmations and all of that, it's because they're not done. So the question is, why aren't they done? Mm. And so that becomes the inquiry. How does this serve me? Why is this still here? And, and the really important thing is, is to avoid this, what you mentioned, which is you beat yourself up about it, because that's not helpful. That's um, using a self to, to destroy a self. And that's, like in, in Buddhism, that's a huge problem, you know. Um, and I'll talk about that in just a second, about, about the nature of the self. But this idea that we can, we can um, whip ourselves into shape or bully ourselves into shape or we can, we can somehow um, cut ourselves off, cut parts of ourselves off that we don't like. 
um, is painful mm, very and not very effective as you're discovering. I, I remember reading somewhere uh, that when the Dalai Lama came to the West, he was just flabbergasted by all uh, the stuff he was hearing about um, uh, self-hate in this culture. And he, he said, well, what is that? He didn't understand it. I mean, it wasn't even part of his vocabulary that, that how he grew up as a monk in Tibet, I guess, a lot different, but, but he didn't even, you know, explain this to me. What do you mean? How do you hate yourself? Mm -hmm. How is that even possible? And I think it's so prevalent here, all of the, you know, yeah. whipping we do to think that that's going to whip us into perfection, and yeah. it never does. Yeah. Yeah, I want to I spend some time with that, so... Here's my question. Do we want to go to that? Are we ready to go to that? Or do you want to take another break first? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Okay. I'll go for a bit more. Um, so this, this question of the self is so huge, complicated, and I think in a lot of ways misunderstood. We have a, a sort of mainstream culture in um, the United States of America that in, in some currents of that mainstream culture is just obsessed with like the the apotheosis of self-concern you know um, I mean you know read those magazines or turn on the Bravo channel or do you know and there, it's just this this intensity of self-concern self-promotion um, everything is about the self in, in the sort of most um, painful and, and shallow and um, vulgar ways okay so and, and I'm not saying that's what American culture is like but there's that aspect in some parts of American culture and then on the other side of the spectrum you've got a common um, problem among spiritual traditions where you, you go to the op opposite extreme where you think the self is the problem we think the self is the problem. If I could just get rid of the self, if I could just make the self small enough, I would be fine because it's the self that wants, the self that worries, the self that has opinions, the self that gets angry, the self that has cravings, the self that's attached. It does all that. So let's just, let's just, oh, it would be so much easier if I could just get rid of it. Okay? Is that a familiar idea to, to people? So you've got this, this polarization between the ultimate self-indulgence and the ultimate self-denial happening at the same time in the same space. It's, this is such an interesting time to be alive. It's such an interesting time to be a North American. Um, what they both share in common is utter self-centeredness, utter self-absorption. Whether you're trying to indulge the self's every whim or um, destroy the self, you're focused entirely on the self. You've either made the self um, the deity or the demon that must be destroyed, but it's still all about the self. Okay. So fortunately, there is an alternative. Um, if we look at what the self is for, what the self is about, um, from a lot of different perspectives from the perspective of neurobiology or philosophy or um, cultural anthropology or lots of different perspectives, we can have a sense of um, we, are these, we are these human organisms. At a certain point in our evolution, we developed a form of consciousness. And there was a kind of, um, I'm obviously 
speaking lightly here, but there, there was a kind of um, poll taken among the parts of consciousness saying, you know, it's really helpful if there's someone who's tracking, like, respiration and um, proprioception, which is where, you know, where you're located in space, and um, how your relationships are with your friends and neighbors and, and what the threats are as you walk down the, through the forest path in, in primordial times. It would be really helpful to have someone kind of in charge of paying attention to all that stuff that basically is about you know, keeping the organism alive, keeping things going. And um, the self said, I'll do that. I'll be really glad to do that. So it had this sort of noble original intention. I will keep you aware of where you are located in space. I will keep you aware of what's happening around you. I'll keep you aware of your relationship with objects and other people and um, what's going on. And um, that will get the organism through the day. And then it kind of developed a little bit more. And then we began to find that um, it's really helpful to have a pattern of who we are that's consistent that we can recognize. So you wake up in the morning and you go look in the mirror and you kind of know who that person is. You kind of recognize her or him from yesterday. And that pattern is really helpful. It saves a lot of time. You know, you don't have to wake up every morning and go, oh, what's a floor for? What's a toothbrush for? What's a person for? What am I for? You don't have to go through all that because there's a kind of consistent pattern. And, and the self took on that job, too. And that's a really good one. So when we have a, a conversation with our spouse, you know, um, with our partner about who's going to pick the kids up, we don't first have to decide, like, what's a you and what's a me and what's a car and what's a kid and what's a school. We, all that stuff is already given, and we can go from there. So far, great. You know, the self is our friend. The self really makes life safer, easier, more consistent, more possible, more creative, because it takes care of all this stuff. So the self enters um, the human, you know, the constellation that is a human being as a kind of statesman. I'll take care of that. I'll, I'll make sure that the organism survives and that the pattern remains consistent. But then this strange thing happens where the, the self that enters like a statesman becomes a politician who's constantly trying to get reelected. <laughs> so constantly trying to convince us that we ought to reelect the self to be in charge, you know. So in some ways we're living um, in this endless reelection cycle where everywhere we look there are giant posters of ourself, you know, reelect. Um, I'll keep it going. And so it's become what, what a colleague of mine calls the out-of-control employee. It's become taking over all kinds of stuff that it just has no business doing and causes so many of the problems that, that people are talking about today. So many of the problems about, about worry and anxiety and fear and, you know, and how to deal with change and all of that have to do with the self is doing the wrong job. You know, the self shouldn't be in control of that stuff. It's not good at it because the self is always going to go, whoa, hold on, be careful, be very careful. This could be really dangerous. That's the basic message of the self. Let's protect 
You know, let's protect. So let's protect the status quo. Let's protect the body. Let's protect our emotions. Let's protect our opinions. Let's protect how we see the world, our worldviews. That's, that's, you know, the politician's motto is, I will protect. Um, okay, so that's a little bit of a problem. That makes life more difficult. But the answer is not to assassinate the politician. The answer is to retire the politician and return it to the job it's really good at, which is that sense of pattern and continuity and that sense of survival. Let it do that. It's really good at that. And let what had become a kind of dictatorship become a democracy that includes mind and heart and body and spirit and intuition and all of the parts of the self working together in a kind of collaboration of which the self is a valued and minor member. (laughs) Um, So we don't have to kill it. We don't have to destroy it. We don't have to make it bad. We don't have to scold it. We don't have to beat it up. We don't have to tell it how it's wrong all the time. We just have to help it remember what its um, best role is. And we have to allow all the other parts of ourselves to emerge and come into that new uh, governing coalition of a human life. Okay, that's my stump speech. That's my, <laughs> my anti-stump speech. Um, any, any questions or comments about that? Yeah. Thank you for the picture you presented. That's just incredibly sane. So um, I will carry that with me. Thank you very much. Um, it occurred to me when you were talking about the self killing off the self and, um, and the relationship of the statesman becoming politician, we hear everybody talking today about boundaries with other people, boundaries with other people, but we don't really talk about boundaries with, our, with ourselves. Say more. Keep going. So... Is it a boundary issue? I would prefer to think of it as a proper role issue. Everybody's doing their proper role, and things work really well when that's happening. Okay. Okay. So, Like what you just said about bringing all the other pieces into it, intuition, heart. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So so that's also giving them their proper role, because in a way, when 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 the self has become the autocrat, the dictator, the other pieces are suppressed in some way. They're, They're... they're inhibited, and so you're kind of releasing the limitations on them and allowing them to find their proper role. Does that make sense? Yes, that's terrific. Thank you. Yeah. So, so one of the inquiries that comes out of this is that um, you begin to sort of get familiar with when the self is giving the stump speech, you know? And that, you might experience that as part of your geology, to go back to that. Oh, yeah, right, this again. You know, what, what's my default reaction? Where do I go over and over and over again, even when it doesn't make me happy? And when we can identify the parts of the self's stump speech, we can begin to question them. Who's speaking? And um, what's the purpose of this? And do I need this anymore? Does this still serve the whole, the whole me? 
And can I coax, cajole, um, encourage, convince the self to take its proper place and its proper role and leave the rest to the rest? Which is very different than beating ourselves up. Very different than feeling like, I shouldn't be like this, I shouldn't be feeling this, I shouldn't be doing this. You are, and what's next? Yes. So who is saying the, um, are you serving the whole me? Is that another self? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a, it's a kind of chorus that comes out of all those pieces acting together. Um, one, one of the, um, the ways that the self tricks us is thinking there's a one single voice that's you and there's a one single voice that's me, which is its voice, of course. But actually, what we are is this kind of chorus, you know, of all these different things, singing all at the same time. Um, and it's sometimes it's harmonious and beautiful and, and you know, even marvelous harmonies are happening and all that stuff. And sometimes it sounds like a bloody mess, you know. But the important thing is that all the voices are there. And the important thing is that we allow all of the voices to find their own way to, um, to sing together. So that's, you know, this is, so Buddhism figured out 2,500 years ago and neuroscience figured out 2,500 minutes ago that there is no self at the center. There is no one thing. There is this chorus singing all the time. And that's it. That's what we got. Yeah. So where do mindfulness and compassion um, fit into the self? Are they part of the self? Or are they just part of the chorus then, right? Um, they're, yeah, th- they're practices that reach their fullest potential when our whole, the whole chorus is engaged in their practice. And let, me, let me give an example of that. Um, mindfulness is obviously an indisputable good, you know. I mean, what could be wrong with being more present, more aware, more attentive, you know, more mindful? Okay, so that's great. If, the, if mindfulness is introduced into a system where the self is the, the tyrant, sometimes it can tend toward, here I am being mindful. I'm so mindful. This is me doing mindfulness, right? It becomes another self-reinforcing practice and a distancing practice because I'm not in relationship to what I'm doing anymore. I'm in relationship to my own mindfulness. Okay, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that's what mindfulness is, but that's a danger if mindfulness is only being engaged in by the self. If mindfulness is being engaged by the whole chorus, then it's much richer and um, um, doesn't doesn't have that same kind of danger. S- exact same thing with compassion. If compassion is an activity of the tyrant, it's going to be completely self-concerned. Here I am being compassionate, you know, or it's become a thing, a commodity that we deliver to the world. You know, I'm going to grace you with my compassion. You know, because the self can only think in terms of the self. When the whole chorus is involved, 
compassion is this just this natural thing that flows through us. I mean, it's flowing everywhere in the world. It's in the in the air. It's in the currents of of, of the air itself, and and our job is just to let it come through us. You know, we don't have to make it. We don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to um, convince ourselves that we're feeling it. We just have to let it. We just have to allow it, and that doesn't happen so well when that tyrannical self is in charge because it's going to run it through that filter of here I am being mindful instead of when compassion runs through the chorus and then it's something like here is compassion and maybe here is compassion with a particular flavor, a particular spin that only this chorus can put on it. That's, that's the beautiful thing, right? Is to discover what song of compassion does this chorus sing? What song of compassion does that chorus sing? Rather than trying to um, align ourselves with an ideal, taking on a template of compassion, we are from the ground up discovering what the particular compassion that gets expressed by each of us actually is. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? That was sort of a lot. Are you using the word self here? They're pretty close. They're not exactly, because, but they're close. Yeah, yeah. What I'm doing now is um, contrasting the self as being that one small part of things to the chorus, which is the union of the whole. There's just one more piece that I want to um, to speak about today, and I know it's a lot, and I know that it can't be digested in this time, and I hope you know that too, and um, and are easy with that. Um, if it's really walking toward you, and if you really want to walk toward it, it won't go away. It's very robust. If it's got you, it's got you, and you're doomed. <laughs> so don't worry about that. You don't have to yet figure out what you're going to do with all of this, um, which brings me exactly to the last piece I want to talk about, um, and that's not knowing, which is gigantic in the koan tradition. It's one of the primary values not to know. Hmm? I, I can't hear, sorry. Not knowing, not knowing. Not knowing is nothing passive or blank or um, an abdication of responsibility or anything like that. It is so engaged and so risky and so big. So there's a, um, a, a famous koan about a monk who's on pilgrimage. It was the, the uh, custom then is now for people to go from spiritual center to spiritual center, checking out this teacher and that teacher and this practice and that practice. And so a monk was on such a, such a journey, such a pilgrimage, and one of the teachers he went uh, to check out asked him, so where do you go from here? And he said, I'm on pilgrimage. And the teacher asked, well, what sort of thing is pilgrimage? And the monk said, I don't know. And I, I have a sense of whatever I set out thinking this was going to be about, this, it's not what this is about. And I'm at the place where the, all of my assumptions have dropped away, and I don't know anymore what this is like. And the teacher says, 
Not knowing is most intimate. And right there is just the essence of the koan tradition. Not knowing is most intimate. When you don't come with the apparatus of your opinions, your preconceptions, your assumptions, uh, your ideas about the way things are, when you don't come with all of that, when you come willing to take the risk of not knowing, that is when it's most intimate. That's when you've, done, you've done, already done the work of deconstruction, where there's nothing between or there's very little between you and the situation. So if you think about how we carry the apparatus of our opinions and judgments and assumptions and our senses of responsibility. And if you think about how much of that apparatus is actually defensive, how much of us are we putting between ourselves and the world as a kind of protection, and you think about willingly removing that, you begin to get a sense for how risky not knowing is. I'm going to go in without all of my defaults, without all of my um, worldview, without everything I'm certain about. And I'm going to see what happens. So that was that second question I brought up. Gosh, was it only last night? It feels like a culpa ago. Um, a culpa is a very long time. Um, what's happening now? There's a wonderful um, Theravadan definition of mindfulness, which is allowing things to speak for themselves without first interrupting. <laughs> That's what not knowing is. Not knowing is allowing things to speak for themselves without interrupting with our opinions, assumptions, preconceived ideas, responsibilities, and all the rest, anxieties, all the rest of it. So it's a profound kind of listening and waiting, listening and patience, and alertness, being alert to what's happening, being alert to what's changing, and working with that. In the beginnings of the koan tradition, when um, the practitioners would meet each other, um, after they said some version of hello, they would say, I am not certain. That's how they would begin every interaction. I am not certain. That's a very different place to start, right? And they would say it mutually. Neither of us is certain. Now what? Now what do we do? So... In the um, Tao Te Ching, which is a classic of, of Taoism, of which there is a lot in the koan tradition, as well as Buddhism, there's a lot of Taoism. Um, in the Tao Te Ching, it says, In the dark, darken further. When you don't know yet, when it's not clear, <clears throat> when you're in a new situation, when you've seen that word that you don't recognize, don't 
turn on the Klieg lights right away. Don't drag it into consciousness. Actually, go the opposite direction. Settle into the not knowing. Settle into the darkness. Find out what becomes possible there. So, this has to do with what we were just talking about and also loops back into the seasons and the weather and all of that. Um, Our practice is not only about bringing things into consciousness and understanding them. It is about that. It's about uh, making conscious what has been unconscious and then being able to, to work with it because now it's conscious. It's also about honoring that there's a lot of stuff going on underground that we're not aware of yet, that we can't see, and trusting that. When we're trusting our lives, we're also trusting the unconscious processes, the underground processes, the things that are not in our control. Um, And we're not anxious that they're not in our control, and we're not trying to drag them into the light of our consciousness. We're trying to darken further, to sink down and include that dimension of things as well. And to acknowledge we don't know the outcome. We can't possibly know how things are going to turn out. Narayan's story about the the man and the horse. You can't... That's a perfect not-knowing story. You can't know what's going to happen. And because we can't know what's going to happen, every single thing each of us will ever, ever do in our lives is a mistake. Because we cannot possibly get it right because we don't know what it means. We don't know the ramifications it's going to have. So it's already a mistake. So the question is never, how do I get this right? Because... That's a futile question that's impossible to answer. The question becomes something like, what's the most beautiful mistake I can make? And that's a completely different relationship to what's happening. My job is not to get it right. My job is to roll up my sleeves and participate as fully as I can. And in the wonderful words of um, Samuel Beckett, just fail better. (laughs) Vanessa Redgrave, when she was a young actress just starting out, asked Samuel Beckett, what advice can you give me as as a young actress? And that was his advice to her for her whole career, just fail better. So there's something, I hope, liberating about that. And again, that is not... um, Passivity. It's a profound engagement in a, in a different way, in a way that is in some ways riskier because there's no recipe going in. We have to figure out what to do based on what's actually happening. And that's a much harder thing to do than coming in with our laminated cards that tell us what to do in every possible situation. So that's what not knowing is this... Um, Amazing, you know, I've been watching the um, Olympics some, you know, and it's this sort of amazing stroll down the balance beam. Um, When the balance beam is as wide as the world. 
Before I close, is there anything that absolutely must be said before we close? Is there anything that it would be incomplete if we don't include it? Thank you all so much for your good attention and your wonderful remarks. It's been a delight to spend this time with you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.